I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. This is one of your hosts, Kaitel. I'm joined virtually as always here in LA by my co-host, Joe, who's back in our hometown of London. And as usual, we have a special guest on the call as well, which of course we're both very excited about. Today's guest is a former Premier League and international footballer whose professional playing career lasted for 15 seasons, saw him represent nine different clubs until only quite recently deciding to hang up his boots. Since then, he's remained a student of the game, albeit off the pitch, where he's earned a UEFA coaching license, as well as a degree in football business and management. We welcome Simon Cox to the United Mates Football Podcast. Simon, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Cheers for being our guest. And how are you doing, mate? I'm very well, apart from the fact that you've just retired me, which I haven't actually retired. <laughs> usually we uh, usually we get the research spot on. So I, I've dated, <laughs> yeah, Simon in, in advance, but um, uh, even better, even better, we'll have even more to talk about, I guess, as you're, um, you're still on the market in, in, in terms of being a football player. So that'll be an extra layer to our conversation. Um, you, yeah, you, no, you all, all good though. Uh, that's fine. No, no problem. Uh, to be fair, I got retired on talk sport a few weeks ago as well. So Oof. don't worry about it. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, I'm in good or bad company, I guess in, in that regard, but otherwise, uh, Joe, <laughs> how's it going on the day of <laughs> Joe, over to you, mate. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to segue out of this, dig myself out of this hole. Um, but as we speak on, uh, this day of recording, we're heading into the international break. As far as um, Premier League football, your team Tottenham sits 19 places, 12 goals and nine points above my beloved Arsenal. So, Joe, are we going to see a St. Totteringham's Day this season or uh, are you convinced that Spurs are going to finish above Arsenal at this point? I mean, yeah, I think St. Totteringham's Day or whatever. Yeah, that's. I don't know if that's going to happen. It's early days, but I literally, um, earlier today on my sort of notice board in my room, I've just put um, something up that says Tottenham are on top of the world and Arsenal are bottom. So, you know, it's it's a great time to be a Tottenham fan. I don't think I can be complaining about that at all. But um, Kai, um, well, no, Simon even, as Kai said, um, we're really happy to have you as a guest today. And when we have a guest on our podcast, we always start with a little bit of an icebreaker question. So we've, of course, got one for you. And we've been doing a little bit of digging into your Instagram account, Simon. Actually, there's some, there's some fantastic pics on there, I've got to say. But, um, <laughs> But, um, some horrible ones as well, by the way. <laughs> well, one, um, one in particular that we um, we picked out was one where I think you were actually in LA, where, of course, Kai lives, with um, a lot of the Bristol City sort of ex-players, so people like Joe Bryan, Aidan Flint, Luke Threeman, Bobby Decadova, reed all of those guys. And I think um, you refer to yourself as the boss dogs, I believe. I think, that was, <laughs> um, I think that's what, what you guys were referring to yourselves as. Um, and so, obviously, you all had a good time together on, on holiday. But what, what we want to know, Simon, is, is there a footballer, that you wouldn't want to go on a lad's holiday with. But we'll give you some time to think about it. So I'll, we'll, we'll kind of give our answers first. And I think the, the footballer I wouldn't want to go on a lad's holiday with is probably Granite Xhaka, 
mainly for his just because he seems so unpredictable you just I don't know I feel like you'd lose him the whole time or he'd he'd end up getting kicked out of the club for getting in a fight or something like that I don't know I just I don't know if I could trust Granite but Kai and um, before we go to Simon who who would you um not want to go on a, a lad's holiday with I guess I'm I'm pretty discerning because I've got some variety I've got a few people who I maybe wouldn't want to go on a lad's holiday with and I'll start with Deli Ali just because I think we all saw it from the um all or nothing Amazon Prime documentary he's clearly a bit of a joker bit of a prankster but I, I get the feeling that nobody finds Deli Ali as funny as Deli Ali finds himself so I think that if you're on a lad's holiday you're maybe hungover or trying to get ready or whatever the pranks they'll probably get old pretty quickly so I'd say Deli uh similarly Grealish because I think we can all probably imagine how long he'd take to get ready and do his hair again not particularly <laughs> conducive to a lad's holiday and then Harry Maguire just because he's got previous when it comes to getting banged up abroad and I don't want anything to do with that um, he wouldn't but, be, he wouldn't be allowed in he wouldn't be allowed in America at the minute would he no so, with a record like that exactly um yeah. so no no uh no Vegas trips for Harry on the horizon but uh, Joe what do you make yeah. about my take on on Delhi do you think I'm I'm accurate in the sense that he thinks he's funnier than anyone else thinks potentially although I reckon he'd be I've seen some of the pictures of his hol- I think he does go on holiday with like Grealish and Chilwell and all those guys and I mean, it would be quite funny to be a fly on the wall, see what they get up to. I'm sure it would be fun. Um, but Simon, you've, you've had a little bit of time to think. Who? Maybe it's one of your, your, I don't know, former teammates or just a footballer you know. Who would you not want to go on a lad's holiday with? I think it's really difficult because uh, there's... I, I mean, I, I kind of got kind of got on well with pretty much everyone in, in my playing days, which was quite nice. Don't get me wrong, I wouldn't go on holiday with every single one of them, but... <laughs> Um, I'd probably say, oh, uh, oh, I'll, listen, I would love to go on holiday with him, but I think my liver wouldn't stand it, uh, would probably be Richard Dunn, um, purely and simply because he's a goldfish. He can, he can drink Guinness like water and, uh, yeah. And I don't think my liver would be able to, to withstand, uh, his drinking antics. Richard Dunn, kind of master of uh, the own goal in the, the Premier League <laughs> during his time and apparently a master of, uh, of the dark arts of drinking as well. Absolutely. But moving on from lads' holidays and to pretty much, I guess, the opposite, back to, back to childhood, Simon. So taking things back to your youth, we like to ask when we have uh, footballers and uh, other people around the game on the podcast, we like to ask about their sort of origin story when it comes to football. How did you get started? What were you paying attention to? Did you look up to any players? When did you sort of start realizing that you had a talent? Yeah, well, I think uh, first and foremost, I think it just comes from um, kicking a ball about in the street, uh, but in your back garden at home. Um, and I was obviously lucky enough; I had an older brother, so um, I would always play football with him and his friends. So I was always playing with people a bit older than me. So it allowed me to quickly learn that fouling was, uh, was an art of the game <laughs> um, because you'd have to get, you know, kick them to, to try and win the ball and stuff. Um, and then obviously through school, uh, you know, I was, I, sport, I probably spent more time on the, on the playground playing football than I probably did and should have done in, in the classroom. Um, like any, any sort of young schoolboy probably would have done back then so that was that was it that was probably that was where I started and then uh, and then as I got through primary school um, 
you know, I started to to sort of do after school clubs and um, soccer schools and stuff like that. And uh, and it sort of progressed from there. And I got sort of selected for um, the district sides. And then I was uh, I was fortunate enough to to play from my Sunday league time up a couple of years. And, and in that Sunday league side was the um, Reading Academy's um, two sons, twin sons. So um, we both played, or three of us played up, up a couple of years. And uh, and I got I got fortunate to, to get asked to go down to Reading's Academy one day. And uh, that was at the age of nine. And, and I never left until I was sort of 20, 21. Yeah, like you said, Simon, obviously you joined Reading at a very young age and you'd be there till you were about 20, 21. You'd, you'd make your debut in the um, that amazing season for Reading, really, the 106-point season, absolutely crazy year. Um, and then, obviously, they'd go up and you'd have a few loan moves at Brentford, Northampton. Obviously, you'd go to Swindon. We'll talk about that a bit later. But is it is it a regret for you that... I know they had a lot of great young strikers at the time and they were doing well in the league, but is it a regret for you that they kind of didn't give you the chance to feature at some point during the Premier League in that first stint for Reading, that is? Yeah, absolutely. I think all I ever wanted really was a chance, um, you know, and I was, I remember, I remember sort of just, we were doing really well in the uh, the reserve league. I think we won the reserve league that year and, and, and I came out, in an, uh, in a newspaper interview and just said all I want is a chance because uh, there were still a few games to go towards the end of the season and, and all I wanted was just you know three or four games to to prove that I was capable and listen ultimately Reading were either safe or they were up or wh- whatever that uh, the situation was at the time and um and I just, I just never got that chance. So it wasn't really. And, and listen, ultimately, if I wasn't good enough, I, I wouldn't have been good enough. So um, you have to sort of realise that at some stage you either are going, going to get a chance or you're not. And if you're not, then you're going to have to try and sort of go somewhere else and try and you know forge a career. On that note, when you moved to Swindon permanently, where did you stand in Reading's long-term plans? Did the manager tell you sort of? his expectations um, in terms of how much playing time you, you might expect to get the next season? Or were you sort of convinced that the first team football wasn't going to come at Reading soon enough and it was just a question of getting that first team football sooner rather than later at, at Swindon instead? Yeah, so I had a, I had a couple of um, line moves the season before and um, I went to Brentford twice. I went uh, both times as a central midfield player and, and it didn't really work out too well. Um, I think Brentford ended up getting relegated that season. So, um, But towards the end of that season, I got a chance to go to uh, Northampton where I went as a centre forward and um, I was able to sort of score my first few goals and, and the season sort of came at a really bad time or came to an end at a really bad time for me because I felt like I was in a bit of momentum. I think I scored three in three or four in six or seven or whatever it was um and I went off into into the off season and I worked hard and I came back into into the into Reading and uh, for pre-season and I I felt like I was in a bit of good momentum obviously on the back of last year I felt fit felt ready to go um you know did all the pre-season games with Reading um and then uh and then it was very clear from the first sort of five or six weeks that uh, that I wasn't going to play. 
and then uh, and then somebody from the club came to me and said, look, you've got an option of two loans. You can either go to Yeovil, um, where one of Reading's ex-players was there and he was on the phone to me asking to come down Lloyd Awusu and then, um, or you can go to Swindon. And obviously Yeovil, if you obviously, you guys probably know, it's not very far, it's not very close to anywhere. Um, so it was a little bit far away for where I sort of, our new home was um, bearing in mind. I'm born in I'm born in Reading, so Reading to Northampton is probably an hour and ten minutes. Reading to Brentford is thirty minutes up the motorway up the M4, and and Swindon is you know half an hour, forty five minutes from from Reading as well. So going to Yeovil probably wasn't on my room. It was a little bit far away from where I needed to be. So I chose I chose Swindon. Um, I was able to stay at home, commute every day. And that sort of just fitted quite nicely with me. I was, like I say, I felt I felt at home pretty, pretty straight away, which was nice. On the permanent move to Swindon, you mentioned sort of the loans to Brentford, to Northampton. I think you suffered a leg break, unfortunately, at Brentford. And then you mentioned playing in midfield. Eventually at Northampton, the goals start to flow a bit more. And then again, uh, when you were loaned to Swindon, you get the goals and you join permanently in January. You finish the season strongly. And then the following season in particular, you sort of, went a bit goal crazy and ended up finishing <laughs> joint top scorer with Ricky Lambert across all of the top four divisions in English football. So what in particular about that season at Swindon clicked for you? Kind of the first time that you're scoring prolifically in your career. Uh, I'd probably say it started from uh, pre-season. Seriously, it was, um, you know, it was this, the, the whole pre-season was tough. It was non-stop running and hard work it was long tiring boring running but it was one that got you fit um <clears throat> and then I think I scored in pretty much every preseason game that we had um so I felt like I had again I had momentum going into the season um and we played I think we played Tramir on the first game of the season and I got one then we played QPR in the in the um first round of the league cup at as it is back then. And um, I felt like that was a test for me to be able to go out and play against a championship side. Um, and I scored in that. So that gave me belief to sort of continue on in that form. Um, and you obviously know that you're going to spend a couple of, you know, a couple of games where you're not going to score, but ultimately it was a, it was a just about continuing good, um, good work, good work rate, good, yeah, good form into, into the, you know, the next game or the next game after that and, and hope you can continue putting yourself in positions where, you know, you're able to either score a goal or make a goal or, you know, get something that, that hits off your backside and goes in. It's um, a good message to not just go through the motions in pre-season, but to actually sort of treat it as the, the starting point for the, for the entire season to come. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, indeed. And yeah, like you know, Kai said, you've said you you know you were banging the goals in that season, over thirty in all competitions, I think. So yeah, well done on that. And then obviously that season ends, and inevitably bigger clubs are going to come calling. I think that's yeah, that is just inevitable when you have a season like that. And obviously you would make the move to West Brom, but presumably there were quite a few other clubs interested as well. And it were, I think Leicester, it sounds like, were potentially interested too. So what was it about West? Brom? Brom that kind of yeah what was your decision behind going there 
Well, you, you said Leicester there, and, and Leicester were never really at the table. They were always sort of rumoured to be interested, but they never really, they never really stamped up the money or never really registered a, a, a sort of serious interest. So the the three clubs that were seriously interested that were uh, they're in the sort of little merry-go-round with each other. Um, so were West Brom, Celtic, and Newcastle. They were the three clubs that. Um, that were, were very interested in me. Um, Newcastle and West Brom had obviously just been relegated from the Premier League. Um, both had didn't have a manager and the West Brom manager who who left went to Celtic and who was Tony Mowbray. And Tony Mowbray was only one of the West Brom staff at the time who came to watch me at Swindon who said that he didn't want to bring me in. So that sort of put pay to my Celtic move. Um, so Celtic then went out the window um, and then it was about West Brom and Newcastle who could appoint a manager first um, I think obviously Tony Mowbray went to Celtic so they were sort of in the market for a new manager and Alan Shearer had left Newcastle after they got relegated um, and he was rumoured to be a fan of mine um, that season so and obviously if I think if he would have um, taken the Newcastle job and he would have phoned me. It's very, I think it'd be very difficult to say no to, to Alan Shearer. So, um, so it was a, literally a race of, of who, who got their manager first. Um, and I got a phone call from um, the director of football at West Brom at the time. Um, and he said, look, we, we want you. Um, we're about to appoint our manager. So I said to him, I said, look, you know, that's fine. If you, whoever your manager is going to be, but, you have to know that I need to know that he wants me as well, as well as you do, because there's no point in me coming in. And then after six months or whatever, he, he turns around and goes, no, I didn't want you in the first place. So you can, you can leave the football club. So then all of a sudden you, you you've done nothing for six months and uh, apart from sit and watch on the bench. So I needed to make sure that was the case. Um, and, and that was the case. So that was, that was it. It, it never really materialized with, uh, with the other two clubs and uh, and West Brom were the first ones to appoint a manager pretty much. Well, I mean, it turned out to be a good decision, obviously, as West Brom got promoted. Ironically, Newcastle did. Oh, did they? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So you were probably, either way, you were going to have a good season. But um, you then obviously you'd get the chance to go and play in the Premier League and um, something that I guess at Reading sort of you, you nearly did, but didn't quite manage it. And then um, I suppose your most famous moment was actually against my team Spurs. I was there <laughs> at Hart Lane. I remember, yeah, it was. I mean, look, it was a it was a fantastic goal. I didn't enjoy it at the time, but it was a <laughs> it was a good goal. But then, um, I guess from a sort of bigger picture, I imagine you probably would have wanted to maybe play a little bit more over those two years, or perhaps um, you know grab a couple of extra goals here and there. Was it? So, I guess my question is: Was it? Did you enjoy your time playing for West Brom in the Premier League, or was it quite a frustrating time? Uh, the one thing I would would have loved is one more season in the championship. And as much as that sounds really strange, because obviously we got promoted, um, is I never really felt like I cracked the championship. Um, you know, I felt like obviously League One, you score so many goals, you feel like right, I've completed that one. That one's fine. Um, to go into a team which is expected to go back up to the Premier League after one season you're not the only person that can score goals in that team. So I, I think I finished on nine or 10 that season um, and we got promoted. I would have loved to have stayed in there 
that one more year with West Brom and scored 15 to 20 goals, then got promoted, felt like I was the sort of main focal point of the team and then had a crack at the Premier League. But don't get me wrong, when you go from League One to the to the Premier League in two seasons and you play in some of the stadiums that you play in, um, even if it's for 20 minutes, even if it's from the start, even if it's for 45 minutes, whatever it is, you have to enjoy it. Um, so because you just don't know when that's going to stop. Um, and I felt like I enjoyed it, but I never really um, sort of took it in, if, if you understand what I mean. Like I, ne- I didn't really, I probably wasn't present um, and felt like I had the belief to play at the Premier League. It's fascinating to to hear you talk about that sort of extra season to 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 crack the championship. Obviously, a couple of other people associated with Brentford, like yourself, um, Ivan Tony, who kind of started producing the goals for Peterborough, Ollie Watkins, who would have done it at Exeter, and then of course they've had those seasons in the championship with Brentford to kind of get that confidence, get the wind in their sails, yeah. and then go up to the to the Premier League. Um, but at the time that you were playing for the baggies uh, along with the sort of high profile and your performances um, you would get called up by Trapattoni to the, to the Ireland squad. And whilst you would go on to represent the country that I believe you qualified for through your grandmother for, you played for them for a few years, uh, you got off to a really quick start. You didn't waste any time um, by getting that fairy tale goal on your debut against none other than Northern Ireland. So can you tell us a bit more about that memory and, I guess, sort of how it may be compared to playing and scoring in a club game. Yeah, well, uh, especially the the game that it was as well. Um, so I I got a, I got a sort of sniff of that I was going to get a call up um, with about four games to go in the in the season. Um, the press secretary at the time came up to me and he said, "Look, we've had a, um, a sort of, we've had a sort of sniff that you, you're going to get a call up for Ireland." And I turned around to him, I said, I've already booked my holidays. <laughs> um, so I'd already booked to go to Marbella with a few friends and stuff and, and to enjoy that. Um, you know, after the season, I thought, you know, that was, it was a nice time to have a little wine, wine down and enjoy a bit of holiday time. Um, and he said, like, what do you want me to say to them? I said, well, you know, let's see if I get the call up first. If I get the call up, then obviously 100% I'll cancel my holiday. Um so then in turn, I, I, I then get the call up and um, I was only really, because ex- I felt like I was part of a really big sort of provisional squad. Um, I was called up to the Carlin Nations, which was a, a competition, which was Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, Wales and Scotland. Um, and they did a little tournament format and the winner of the games won a little little trophy. Um and I was called up for the Northern Ireland game and the Scotland game. So I uh, so I felt like I was just going to go and either be part of it or just, you know, watch and experience it because they were looking at me for maybe a year's down the line after the Euro qualifiers and things like that. It, it sort of come and gone. Um, and then uh, I must have done OK in uh, in training that, uh, you know, I was able to get to get a start and uh yeah I was I was involved in one of the other goals in it and I was able to to get off the off the mark of was it the fifth one I think I scored and um yeah I mean it was it was one of those that you you sort of dream about to score on your debut for your country is, is something with like 
family in the crowd and everything else it was uh it was something that you you know i can always uh remember for the rest of my life yeah an absolute fairy tale end to the beginning of your your international playing career speaking about goal scoring you mentioned sort of the iconic alan shearer and that being someone who you obviously looked up to i still think it would have been great to to see you and andy carroll the carroll cox partnership just tearing it up <laughs> in the championship but who knows who knows like you said you're not you're not retired yet so that it still might happen um but Speaking of, I guess, role models like Alan Shearer, you've gone and played with Robbie Keane for Ireland. You've played alongside great strikers, and I can only assume you've had players who scored goals for fun back in the day who kind of impacted you behind the scenes as coaches or within club setups. Is there someone in particular that you either modelled your game on the most or took the most from, or were you always constantly adding wherever you could kind of learn from somebody new? Uh, Well... My idol growing up was uh, Teddy Sheringham, um, just because of the way that he played the game. Um, you know, never, never the quickest. Always played with his head. Um, could see a pass, and and you know, sort of popped up with enough goals to to sort of keep him in the in the team and and in the squads for for top top teams. So um, he was the one I sort of looked up to really as a player, but. Robbie Keane was uh, incredible. Um, probably the best player I played with um, because he was so far ahead of everybody else that we played that I played with alongside. Um, just he would be able to set things up. He would be able to move you into position to to create an opportunity. He would see that two or three passes ahead of of the ball even coming to you, and that and I just. I would lo- would have loved an extra one or two more seasons with him to learn a little bit more to to be able to take that from him and sort of try and put that into place uh, for myself and at club level and, and international level. That's really interesting to hear you talk about Robbie Keane. I mean, he's a bit of a childhood hero of mine, and also even Teddy Sheringham too. Um, yeah, you should you should have played for Tottenham, Simon. That's what. That, <laughs> uh, and you even scored a great goal at White Hart Lane, so that was great too. But um. <laughs> Um, after your time at West Brom, you obviously went on to Forest for a couple of seasons. A good, a good Forest team, actually, pushing for the Premier League. Didn't quite work out. I mean, it just never seems to work out for Forest. They seem to be quite unlucky. But um, you would then obviously go back to your hometown team, Reading. And obviously, you've mentioned you grew up in Reading. You joined the club as a nine-year-old. Um, it, you know, the club clearly meant a lot to you. So was this... Um, was this a move, having kind of left the club without playing for them too much? Had you always had it in your mind if an opportunity would arise to go back there? Was it something you always wanted to take? I don't know, did you feel you had unfinished business perhaps at, at Reading? No, not really, because there was, uh, I always felt that I wouldn't get the opportunity to go back. Um, I felt like my career was taking me on a journey up up and down the country and it, and it wouldn't stop off uh, at Reading. Um, and, I, and I was okay with that. Uh, but when the opportunity came to to come back to to the football club, like you said, that I always call it my club because I I'm, I've known that club for for you know majority of my life. And um, when I went when I had the opportunity to go back there, I, I was never ever going to say no. But when you said, I, "Do I have unfinished business there?" I never really felt like I started. Um, because I only made a real handful of appearances. Um, 
never started a game. So the first time I started the game when I went back the second time was my first start for the football club. And then obviously the first goal that I got uh, in the cup, uh, I think it was my second appearance, it was it was my first goal for the club uh, at senior level. So I felt like I was starting a new chapter, but obviously at a club that I was very, very, very familiar with. Um, and I, I was talking to someone earlier that I've got a really nice photo of... Uh, of me signing my first professional contract with Sir John Medeski. And then when I came back, uh, I've got another picture and they're side by side. Um, and like this, this is the two of us doing the exact same handshake in the exact same position across the exact same table. We just look a little bit different. <laughs> You've probably got a few more tattoos, huh? <laughs> a few more. Oh, oh yeah, but I was in a jumper then, so I couldn't see him, so it was fine. <laughs> But I had, I've got, well, I say I've got a bit more hair. I think I'm losing a little bit as well. <laughs> well, after your second spell, which I, like you said, almost felt like kind of like your real first spell with the, the Royals, um, you would move to South End. And that was actually, I think, the longest time that you'd spend with one club throughout your career was at South End. Um, actually, it's also where your scoring record is best, apart from at Swindon, of course. So, the goals come flowing back when you became a shrimper. I know that your time there maybe didn't end as you would have hoped, but setting that to one side for now, was there something unique about the culture or the technical setup at Roots Hall that made you feel so at home there? Uh, no, not, not really. I just felt that it was, a, it was a place, you know, like I said to you before, that I felt like I'd sort of cracked League One. I felt like I was come when I was coming back into League One, I felt like I was at home already. Like I was able to, I knew what I had to do to score goals and and probably being the main figure head to, to score those goals. And um, that was probably one of the biggest things for me as well. Um, you know, the other clubs I, I was at, like I said before, you're not the only person that can score goals in those teams. So you might be in a good position, but somebody else is in as good a position and they choose right or left to, to go to you to score the goals. So um, whereas at, at South End, it might well have been, or well, we we passed to you to score the goals. That's that's your job. Um, and don't get me wrong, like it, it, get, it needed me to, uh, when I went there the, um, the first season, it, I probably went with a little bit of an ego, uh, obviously after doing and, and being at the clubs that I've been at. Um, and it needed for someone to give me a bit of a rollicking after uh, a, a bad defeat one day. Um, and then spending a little bit of time on the bench, you know, two or three games on the bench for me to realise, you know what, this is your career, this is your life. You need to, you know, shut up and get going. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself out of a career very, very quickly. It's a very good point. The world of football is just constantly moving and um, we see players who are one day touted for, you know, stardom. And then the next day it's, you know, the, no one's really talking about them anymore. But um, it seems like you sort of put your best foot forward throughout throughout your career. Um, at South End in particular, I think that's a club that I've always thought of as kind of a, a good place for strikers. I think back to Freddie Eastwood, even a former Spurs striker scored a bunch of goals there. Uh, Lee Barnard back in the, yeah, back yeah. In the day at South End. Um, kind of like Scunthorpe in that sense, always seem to be producing great, great forwards. Um, but after Southend, um, we're moving on to what at this point is the the last team that you played for, and you took the step. You played in England, you played for Ireland, and now you you move to play domestic football in Australia's A League for Western Sydney Wanderers. 
So what was your time playing football down under like and sort of looking back, do you wish that you could have and maybe still do you possibly have intentions to play in another international league before you properly hang up your boots? Yeah, I would. Uh, listen, if, if another opportunity came to, to go and play somewhere else in the world, then absolutely. Um, you know, I feel like as much as football, it, it moves forward and it moves forward very quick and you can very, very quickly be forgotten in football, it, regardless of who you are and what you've done. But actually going out and experience Australia, somewhere else in the world, America, India, Thailand, wherever it would be, um, it's, it's something definitely that um, it would definitely uh, interest me. Um, but Australia was brilliant. Really, really loved it. Um, actually, yeah, I feel like it was one of those places where when you sort of think back at it, if I'd have gone a couple of years earlier, probably would have suited me a little bit more. Um, but, you know, you, you, you're never going to, you're never going to know that at the time. So um going out there for the sort of 15 months, 18 months that I was out there with all the interruptions of COVID and everything else. Um, it was, uh, it was a great time and a really good club to play for. And the standards actually really, really good as well, which is, uh, which was a sort of bit surprising for me. I thought it was going to be quite slow and sort of lethargic uh, the way that they did it because I'd never really watched an A-League game, but actually when you get out there is it's intense. It's um, there's good rivalries out there, and and the stadium and facilities and stuff and that are really really good out there. Well, I'll put in some good words for um, LAFC and LA Galaxy in, in case uh, you end up being able to come over to the West Coast to to play. In terms of Australia, one last question. You mentioned sort of the opinions that people might have on the standard of, of football, or or even maybe like the differences in the style of play. Obviously, I think the Championship in English football is renowned for kind of the physicality. Um, it may, you made it sound like the standard's still pretty decent. How would you sort of define the style of Australian domestic football for people who wouldn't be particularly familiar with the clubs or the way that they play, the way that the Socceroos like to get down? Yeah, I would say that uh, every team wants to try and play football the right way. Um, a little bit like your lot, Arsenal, they try and play out from the back. Um, we try, we try. <laughs> they get caught a little bit more than most teams. So, uh no, it's a it's a team, or it's a it's a um, it's a standard where you very rarely get six foot five, six foot six centre forwards go to that league, and you don't get um, centre halves booming it from one end to the other. Um, it's not, it's not like that. It's everyone trying to pass through lines, making connections, uh, a bit of interchange play, and um, and they try and do it the right way. It's just not. Um, broadcasted anywhere that anybody can watch it and that's and that's a bit of an issue obviously the timings uh, of the games are a bit a bit different when they kick off um i think it's october i think they kick off um the times will be like 6 30 in the morning here in in the uk um and if you're getting up to watch the a league it means you've either had a really bad night's sleep or uh, or you've got kids so um it's it's nothing else but um but something to watch so um I, listen I, I thought it was great um probably uh, to try and put it into a standard in the uk i'd probably say that it's somewhere between sort of bottom end championship and higher end league one um one thing i would say that if you stuck the championship in 40 degree, 38 degree heat 
uh, and ridiculous humidity, the championship would slow down. The tempo of the game would slow down. Um, and that's what it is over there. It's it's a slower paced game just purely and simply because of heat and hum- humidity. So um, it's, it's somewhere in the middle of that, I'd say. I, I read Simon again, sorry, really quickly, just before I let Joe jump in, because I'm kind of monopolizing you at this point. But um, I'd read that at South End towards the end, you sort of had fallen out of love to an extent with with the game, unless I'm unless I've sort of that's been a misquote that I've read somewhere. But one, I guess, it, was that the case it, on any level? And, and did this move kind of reinvigorate you or kind of the new experience of, of playing in Australia kind of show you another side of, of football or remind you of a side of football that you really enjoyed? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I probably did fall out of love with football a little bit, just purely and simply on the basis that I needed I needed surgery. I needed um, double hernia surgery, groin surgery, abductor surgery. I, I was a mess. Um, and it was, it was something that had been building up for the last three seasons at Southend, like because of you know, when you when you play at higher levels, the pitches and the training grounds are all really good and the and all the rehab facilities and that that you can have um, are, are, are top, top draw. Whereas the lower you go, the, the pitches aren't as good. And, um, and it, it just, it just got to be a bit of a mess. And then when um, my last season or my last six months at South End, <clears throat> I got, um, I got injured in the off season doing my preseason running, I pulled a calf. Um, then when I tried to come back, I pulled the other one. So I was not starting from a good, uh, good place. And then, um, and this is the first time really from, a, from my career of 15 years, 16 seasons or whatever it is, um, I'd ever been injured apart from like the, the leg break at, at, um, when I went to Brentford. So um, I never had muscular tears or anything else like that. Um, so this was like really new to me. And then when I came back, I was obviously far behind in, in pre-season fitness. Um, I made the bench for the first game of the season after training for like pre-season training for like one or two days um, because I felt like I, I needed to be there. Um, and then I was always playing catch up, never felt sharp. Um, and then I started get as the sort of the end of um, the summer sort of came. So you sort of talking September, October time the pitches started to go a little bit because at South End you only got really two pitches you can play on. Um, and the more you play on one, the, the more cut up it becomes. Um, and my groin started to sort of tear apart and, uh, and I needed to go get surgery, but I couldn't obviously have surgery because I felt like I was the sort of, again, the figurehead that I needed to be. And, um, and I didn't want to let the team down. So I felt like I was in a position, I was sort of, sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place do you get what's best for you and your body or do you get what's best for the team and um and I kept trying to play on kept trying to play on um kept having injections into my groins um and I just I wasn't enjoying it I really wasn't um and then Sol Campbell came in one of your lot um well both of your lots (laughs) um and it, it just didn't work. Uh, every time I tried to to say, look, I need, I can't train every day. I can't do this and I can't do that. He was like, well, you know, you, you're really no good to me. And I was like, well, 
you know, if you work with me and I can do my strength work and I can do physio work and I can come out one or two days a week, you know, if you work with me, you know, we can try and make it work. Um, and he just wasn't having it. And then, and then that was me. I, I just literally couldn't train. So then I wasn't playing. And then we never really saw eye to eye after that. So, uh, and then when obviously I got the opportunity to, um, to go out to Australia, I felt like after having a sort of course of injections, I went out, went to Australia, really enjoyed that. And then I was able to get the, uh, they, they were really good with me in terms of training and, and physio work and stuff like that and injections. Um, and then I was able to get my surgery in and I felt like I was back to, back to normal. Fantastic. Well, you yeah. a long answer that one, but <laughs> no, we that's what we like. We like a nice long answer. That's that's what we're here for. But um, no, it looks like you know the 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 trip down under obviously um was was really good for you both on the pitch and um, personally. But um, I guess look, it's it's very clear that your your football career isn't over yet, and though we hope to see you in another team soon. But clearly, you've been thinking as well um about you know life after you know playing as well you've you, you were coached at self end for a bit i believe the sort of academy teams and also out in sydney but you've also gone and got your masters um, in football business management which kaitel mentioned at the start so i guess the, there's a few potential routes for you to for you to follow after football out, out, out of those two things i've mentioned is there one in particular that you um that you can see yourself moving into yeah I, ideally i want to go into coaching i want to go into management um as much as I haven't retired, like I, I keep applying for jobs um, because I feel like um, I want I want that experience. I want to be able to, um, whether it be go for the interview process, I want to be able to set up a, a PowerPoint where you're able to explain why and how you're going to make the next generation better, make them earn a career and, and how you can help them. Um, so I want I want to do that. Um, I also have been in football long enough that the, um, which is one of the reasons I did the masters um, was to, to look behind the scenes of football, because as a football player, you, you spend all your time at the front. You never see what's behind. Um, and it, it, it showed me a lot of some things you already knew um, or, or had a brief knowing about Um but some of the stuff was was scary, to be honest. Um, and some of the guest speakers we had on in the course, um, some have worked for Liverpool, uh, Monaco. Um, you know, we had we had agents on, we had um, accountants on, and stuff like that. And it was a real good insight into into football business um, and how it's forever evolving. Um, the stadiums and how they sort of get you with ticketing information, merchandise information, you know, they're forever sending you with offers and everything else. And that was a real interesting sort of insight into, into behind the scenes of football. So ideally management, but obviously if that doesn't really work, um, I wouldn't mind the, the sort of sporting director role or uh, director of football role. I feel like that's a good, um, a good role as well. Oh yeah, most definitely. <laughs> I feel like that's the only role in football that you never really get judged on. You never really see sporting directors get a sack, do you? You always get, oh, you know, that that transfer didn't work, and you go, oh yeah, but that one did. So don't worry about that. So I never really feel like that sporting director or director of football ever turns around or the owner goes, oh, we've got to sack him because he's rubbish. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's like a, 
semi-retirement kind of like a comfortable level at a boardroom maybe but i mean you only have to look at arsenal to see how it doesn't make the, the wrong yeah, i was gonna say making the wrong decisions in those positions can actually quite negatively impact a football club although of course neither of us would expect you to to do things like that simon much more sensible otherwise simon you mentioned kind of it being scary well, that was a word you used. Is that just with regards to just how much you weren't aware of in the first place? Or were there things that you found out about that actually didn't maybe sit right with you? No, no, no. It was just, it was just the information that, that clubs can, can get to, to supporters. Uh, and it differs between whether you're a, a seven-year-old or a 70-year-old. Um, so... <clears throat> The guy that we had uh, that was from Liverpool, who now works at, at Monaco, um, he showed us a, a slide and, and a presentation that, that they put together at Liverpool, and and it was just it was it was so detailed on on how you you get your information and who you get it to and how quickly you can get it to them, and um, you know you might think of signing up to a newsletter is the only thing you do, but all of a sudden then offers get come to you for a, an away jersey or a, or a, a, an away season ticket or a home season ticket or, you know, that sort of thing. And it, it just surprised me of how quickly they can get information to you. I mean, they, they've got things like, I mean, both of your stadiums now are, they call them smart stadiums. As soon as you walk in, ping, that's you, you've got, you've got an offer, whether it be for a concession, whether it be for the megastore or anything else like that. And it, it just really surprised me of how that, like data and um and you know all that sort of stuff can can get you now and it's all about how quickly we can get it to you yeah no it's really fascinating actually and yeah and then in the new spurs stadium it's well i know from being a member all the, all the emails i get anywhere from the different <laughs> offers but also yeah yeah once you're in the stadium all the all the different things they try and throw at you it's um it's interesting and it's um you know, maybe one day we'll be seeing you masterminding the approach for some clubs. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, maybe one day. Yeah, maybe one day. Exactly. But um, I think, yeah, that's all um, all we've got time for today. Um, a big thank you to my co-host, Kaitel, as always. And an even bigger thanks to our guest, Simon. Um, it's honestly been great chatting to you today Simon and and for our followers and well our listeners who have um, been listening to this um where where can they follow you and kind of keep up to date with everything that you'll do uh so I'm on I'm on pretty much all socials so apart from TikTok I don't get it um <laughs> but yeah uh same pretty much same handle on on Twitter or on Instagram, it's uh, scoxy31 or scoxy31real. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. So, um, so yeah, follow me, interact with me. I'm, I'm pretty open to, to things on there. So, yeah, let's, uh, let's have a chat. Yeah, I can confirm that was how I got in touch with Simon in the first place. Cheers again for joining us. Uh, absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed this conversation. Best of luck in your next steps, whatever they may be as far as your career and um, best wishes to your family as well. Otherwise, um, to our listeners and viewers, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a follow, a like or a subscribe wherever you prefer to check out the podcast. You can find us on your favorite podcast streaming platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts, you name it. Just look for United Mates Football Podcast. Same goes for our YouTube channel as well, if you feel like putting some faces to these voices. Across social media, we're at United Mates FP for Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And then check out our website. That's www.unitedmatesfp.com. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Goodbye.